0: When I was in grade school, one of the things that I enjoyed as much as anything else was story time. I loved story time. usually took place after lunch. Uh, I think the teachers used it to try and calm us down a little bit, get us ready to do some work. But we'd come in and we'd uh, go to our desk, we'd put our hands down and our head in our hands and... The teacher would dig out a book that she had selected and she'd read a a chapter or two to us. I can still visualize coming in after lunch recess and putting my head in my hands, and it's almost as if I could see everything that was going on. It was like I was behind a bush or in a corner of the room living the stories that the teacher would read to us It was powerful. It was wonderful. We were able to enjoy great stories like Huckleberry Finn and Tom Sawyer and and many others. Even today, I love stories. When I get in my pickup and I'm all by myself, if somebody else is with me, they won't let me do this. But if I'm all by myself, I'll turn into uh, KMBI. And you know what I look for? I don't look for music. I look for Odyssey. I love Odyssey. It's godly people. Stories about godly people using God's Word to help them solve everyday problems. It's wonderful. I've always been amazed at how well-written words can allow you to visualize something. It's as if you're standing right there watching the whole thing happen. Let me see if I can illustrate that for you. This is something that many of you have heard before. It's a different version. I gave this to Charlie years ago, and I stole it from Ron McConkie, so it's been around the preacher's barrels for a long time. This man was in an accident. Work accident, not a car accident. So he filled out an insurance claim. The insurance company contacted him and asked for more information. This was his response. I am writing in response to your request for additional information for block number three of the accident reporting form. I put poor planning as the cause of my accident. You said in your letter that I should explain more fully and I trust the following details will be sufficient. I am an amateur radio operator and on the day of the accident I was working alone on the top section of my new 80-foot tower. When I had completed my work, I discovered that I had, over the course of several trips up the tower, brought about 300 pounds of tools and spare hardware. Rather than carry the now unneeded tools and material down by hand, I decided to lower the items down in a small barrel by using a pulley, which was fortunately attached to the gin pole at the top of the tower. Securing the rope at ground level, I went to the top of the tower, and loaded the tools and material into the barrel. Then I went back to the ground and untied the rope, holding it tightly to ensure a slow descent of the 300 pounds of tools. You might note in block number 11 of the accident reporting form that I weigh only 155 pounds. (laughs) Due to my surprise of being jerked off the ground, so suddenly I lost my presence of mind and forgot to let go of the rope. Needless to say, I proceeded at a rather rapid rate of speed up the side of the tower. In the vicinity of the 40-foot level, I met the barrel coming down. This explains my fractured skull and broken collarbone. Slowed only slightly, I continued my rapid ascent, not stopping until the fingers of my right hand were two knuckles deep into the pulley. Fortunately, by this time, I had regained my presence of mind and was able to hold onto the rope in spite of my pain. At approximately the same time, however, the barrel of tools hit the ground and the bottom fell out of the barrel. Devoid of the weight of the tools, the barrel now weighed approximately 20 pounds. I refer you again to my weight in block number 11. As you might imagine, I began a rapid descent down the side of the tower. In the vicinity of the 40-foot level, I met the barrel coming up. This accounts for the two fractured ankles and the lacerations of my legs and lower body. The encounter with the barrel slowed me enough to lessen my injuries when I fell onto the pile of tools, and fortunately only three vertebrae were fractured. I'm sorry to report, however, that as I lay there on the tools, in pain, unable to stand, and watching the empty barrel 80 feet above me, I again lost my presence of mind and let go of the rope. You see what I mean? Words, when they are well written, can allow you to create a visual picture of something. It's as if you're standing right there watching the whole thing. Did you know that Jesus was a storyteller? He was. His stories are recorded in the form of parables. Parables, by definition, are earthly stories with a heavenly meaning. Typically, they have one point. Over the years though, studying scripture with Phil, he's taught me that if there's more than one person in a passage of scripture, if you put yourself in the place of each individual and read the passage of scripture, you gain different perspectives of that passage of scripture. Typically, when somebody preaches on the parable of the talents, they preach it from the standpoint of the servants. Today, we're going to put ourselves in the position of the master and read the passage of Scripture from his perspective. You see, the master goes on a long journey, and he leaves his servants in charge. In preparation for his journey, he develops a three-step plan. First of all, he prepares for the journey. Verses 14 and 15 tell us this. It says, Again, it will be like a man going on a journey who called his servants and entrusted his property to them. To one, he gave five talents of money, to another, two talents, and to another, one talent, each according to his ability. Then he went on his journey. There are a few things that we need to get straight before we go too much further. First of all, who's the master? And where's he going? The master is Jesus himself. And he's going to return to the Father. It only makes sense that if Jesus is the master. And he's going to return to the Father. Then we are his servants. Those of us who have accepted him as Lord and Savior. And have decided to follow him. So the master is going on a long journey. What does he do? He does the same thing that most of us do. When we get ready to go on a trip, we sit down and we make a list of the things that we need and the things that need to be taken care of when we're gone. For instance, back in Jesus' time, obviously He needed clothes, obviously He needed food supplies, but He also needed to make sure that His animals had enough to be taken care of as well. And then... He needed to make sure that things were taken care of at home. Who's going to feed the dog? Who's going to mow the lawn? Who's going to stoke the fire in the wintertime so the pipes don't freeze? Those sorts of things. And then he calls his servants unto himself and he gives them the list. And along with the list, he gives them money. To the first servant he gives five talents. Do you know how much a talent is? A talent was years and years of wages. It was a tremendous amount of money. But you know what? The value of the talent is really insignificant. What is important is that the master trusted his servants with his estate. That's really what's important. It should be noted that during Jesus' time... In the Roman Empire, servants or slaves could earn a wage. They could get a bonus. They could own property. This gave them an incentive to make sure that their master's property was well cared for. So, the master gives five talents to the first servant. Two talents to the second servant and one talent to the last servant. Notice what the Bible does not say. The Bible does not say that the master tells these servants what to do with this money. It only says that he gave each according to his ability. It's obvious that this master recognizes that each one of these individuals has a different skill level. How many of you men... When your family's going on vacation, packs the bags. (laughs) I don't see a hand. My hand isn't going up either. Denise packs the bags at our house, and there's a reason for that. Because otherwise we'd come up missing something. You know what she does? She makes a mental checklist of how many days we're going to be gone, who's going, and what's going to be needed for each individual that goes. And then she takes and she lays out a suitcase for each one of us, And she begins to pack the bags. She packs socks and underwear and pants and shirts for every day. Swimming suits if we need them. uh, Toiletries, toothbrush, toothpaste, things to wash your face with. All that sort of stuff. When the kids were little, she would pack toys so they could entertain themselves. And diapers and diaper bags. Uh, And then when she's done, she zips up the bags and she hands them to me. And this is where you guys come in you've got to go out and try and make everything fit. More often than not, I've been out there and packed the back of the car and looked around and here's an extra suitcase sitting there and I don't have room for it. So I'd have to unpack everything and start all over. Eventually, we make things fit. When you're going somewhere, it is very important that you have everything you need for the trip. And that everything at home is taken care of by people that you trust. George was a 68-year-old contractor. Carpenter, I should say. He'd worked for his boss for over 30 years. He was skilled as a carpenter, both as a rough carpenter and as a finished carpenter. And the two complement one another. If you're a good finished carpenter, you know what a rough carpenter needs to be doing right. He had made his boss millions and millions of dollars because of his skills. But he was at the age that he wanted to do something different. He wanted to retire. He was getting tired and he wanted to move on. So he went to his boss and he said, he said, by the end of the year, I'd like to retire. And his boss looked at him and he said, well, good for you, George. He said, you've worked hard all your life. You've earned this. He said, there's one last project that I would like you to handle for me. The owner has given me square footage. He wants a square, uh, a, a square footage of 4,000 feet in his home. And guess what? The rest of it's up to us. You have an unlimited budget. You can buy whatever you want. Buy the very best materials. Be as creative as you can. You even lay out the floor plan. And so George went to work. About a week into the project, he got to thinking to himself and maybe feeling a little sorry for himself. And he thought, you know, I've worked for this fellow for 30 years, and I have never received a thank you, and I have never received a bonus. It's about time that I got my due. And so he began to cut corners. With the lumber, instead of buying number ones, he bought number threes. He bought Chinese fixtures. He bought the cheapest tile and the cheapest carpet that he could find and obviously the cheapest paint. Paint looks good whether it's cheap paint or good paint, at least for a little while, and it covers up a multitude of sins. George finished the house and called his boss and he said, it's done. His boss said, I'll be right over. As George sat there and waited for his boss, he began to think. He thought to himself, you know, I have cheated my boss and I have stolen from the new owner. I've pocketed nearly $125,000 off of this project and it isn't right. But it was too late. He couldn't change things, he couldn't fix things. The boss showed up and walked into the house and he looked around and he said, George, it's beautiful. It's absolutely beautiful. The new owner will be thrilled. And by the way, George, you're the new owner. Thank you for all your years of service to me and my company. Jesus went on a long trip, and he left all of us in charge. He entrusted us with his whole kingdom. What are we going to do with what God has entrusted us with? Are we going to be faithful servants? or unfaithful servants. The second part of the uh, master's plan was simply to go on the trip. Verses 16 through 18 tell us this. It says, The man who had received the five talents went at once and put his money to work and gained five more. So also the one with two talents gained two more. But the man who had received the one talent went off, dug a hole in the ground, and hid his master's money. The master just went on the journey. That was his plan, was to leave. We don't know where he was going or what he was doing. We just know that he left. Jesus did the same thing. Jesus ascended into heaven. He returned to the Father. And you know what? We can't see Jesus face to face. Just like these servants couldn't see their master face to face. They didn't have cell phones. They didn't have radios. They couldn't jump on their horse or their donkey or their camel and travel for a few days and and find the boss and say, well, this is what's going on. What do you think we should do? He was out of touch. We cannot see Jesus face to face. We can pray to Him. He will listen. And He will answer our prayers. But we cannot see Him face to face. So, the master's out of touch. And the second part of his plan goes into effect. The servants take over. Once again, it is obvious that this is a very wealthy man. Very wealthy. And he entrusts virtually everything he has to his three servants. He knows them intimately. He knows what their abilities are. And if his trip is going to be a success, he has to trust these three men. He has to trust them. He has already distributed the talents and he himself has gone and the servants go to work. The first servant and the second servant think a lot alike and say so they go out and they invest their master's money. Now, sometimes we get the impression that they took the money and they invested it with the bankers. They didn't do that. Jesus addresses that at the end of the parable when he says to the unfaithful servant, The least you could have done was taken it to the banker. These men took a risk with their master's money. They took a chance of losing every dime. But yet the risk paid off. And they doubled their master's money. The third servant, however, went out and he dug a hole in the ground. And he buried his master's money. Now that really doesn't seem like a bad thing, does it? During Jesus' time, if you really wanted your money to be safe, that's what you did. You went out at night, when nobody was looking, you dug a hole in the ground and buried your master's money. And it was safe there. Unless somebody saw you dig the hole, then it wasn't safe. But the banks were untrustworthy at that time. And if you took a chance and invested the money, you took a chance of losing all of it. He was afraid and so... He chose not to take a risk. That doesn't seem like a bad thing, does it? It doesn't until you begin to apply the parable to real life when you begin to realize that the parable is not about money. Money is just part of an illustration. You see, if Jesus is the Master and we are His servants, the question arises, what has He entrusted us with? He has entrusted us with His Word. The good news. The Gospel. The only way that Jesus' journey back to the Father can be successful is if we, His servants, take what He has given to us and invest it. And the only place that we can invest it is in the hearts and the minds of those people around us. The third servant failed. Because he, he took his master's money out and buried it in the ground and hid it. And then he said, Here, Master, this is what belongs to you. When we went to Africa, we saw all kinds of people. We saw people who were creative, who were industrious, and who were willing to take a risk to make their lives better. And then on the other hand, we saw those people who were lazy and slothful. Beth has dug up some pictures for me. And these are not pictures that we took, but we saw similar situations like this. This is a seven-passenger Kenyan minivan. (laughs) Now, if we did that, the officer would pull us over and he'd fine us for not having enough seatbelts. This next one, now take a close look. Can you see what that is? Those are eggs. I wouldn't make it around the block with that thing. I'd have a... A whole bunch of them broke already. This last one is a picture of their long-haul truckers. <laughs> and you can't see it, but in the shadow, that back tire is virtually flat. You know, we didn't see pictures like this, or we didn't see these ones here, but we saw similar things. We saw as many as four adults on a motorcycle. And the reason they used motorcycles is because they were cheap, they were uh, Easy to operate and uh, they could go anywhere. But we did see uh, one of the things we saw was uh, a guy had six tubefores tied onto the back of his motorcycle. Now, how do you put tubefores on a motorcycle? He had them strapped on so they stuck out the back like this. There was four feet of board on each side, and he was going down the street honking his horn, making sure everybody knew he was coming because he was cutting a wide path. Another guy had a Chester drawers on the back of his motorcycle. And that thing was about that wide and it was that high. And he was going like a boat down the road because it was heavy and it was hanging over the back end. These people did whatever they needed to do to make their lives better, to get things done. But yet on the other hand, there were those people who were lazy and slothful as well. Our mode of transportation there in Kenya was Jeeps. And everywhere we went, we took two spare tires with us because the tires, the best ones, were bald. At least two of them had belts showing and some of them had big chunks taken out of them. So we'd make a a trip somewhere and we'd have a flat tire. So every time we got someplace where we could get it fixed, we'd drop it off and get it fixed. It only took once to figure out that if we didn't stand there and watch them fix the tire, all they would do was air it up and give it back to us. And then they'd charge us for it. So we had to stand there and make sure that they fixed the tire right. They were lazy. They were slothful. Jesus talks about both of these people in this parable. There is both kinds of these people everywhere you look. The Master has gone on a long journey he has left us in charge he has entrusted his whole kingdom to us what kind of a servant will we be for him the last part of the master's plan was that he would return and settle accounts with his servants i'm not going to read the 19 through 30 it's long But after a long time, the master returned to settle accounts with these three men. And beginning with the first servant, he called him in. And the servant was so excited to see him. He said, Master, you entrusted me with five talents. See, I have gained five more. And the second one comes in. Likewise, he's just as excited. He too had taken a risk with his master's money. And he said, Master, you have entrusted me with two talents. See, I have gained two more. What did his master say to him? The first servant. He said, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful in a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Come and share the master's happiness. And finally, the third servant comes in and immediately begins to make excuses. Verse 24. He said, I know that you were a hard man harvesting where you had not sown and gathering where you had not scattered seeds. So I was afraid and I went out and hid your talent. Here is what belongs to you. Notice the Master's response. Verse 26. You wicked, lazy servant. How does that statement end? What's at the end of that statement? It's not a period. It's an exclamation point. The master was mad. He was beyond mad. He was furious. He was furious because he knew that the third servant understood what he expected of him. He understood that he was a man who harvested where he had not sown seeds and yet He still did nothing. Nothing at all. What makes you faithful is not how many talents you are given. What makes you faithful is what you do with what God has entrusted you with. How many of you have heard that statement, I shall return? Who made that statement? Douglas MacArthur. I googled this off the internet here last week. And it's just a little blurb blurb about MacArthur, but I want to read it to you. MacArthur served as chief U.S. military advisor to the Philippines before World War II. The day after Pearl Harbor was bombed on December 7, 1941, Japan launched its invasion of the Philippines. After struggling against great odds to save his adopted home from the Japanese conquest, MacArthur was forced to abandon the Philippine island fortress of Corregidor, under orders from President Franklin Roosevelt in March of 1942. He left behind at Corregidor and on the Bataan Peninsula where 90,000 American and Philippine troops who lacked food, supplies, and support and would soon succumb to the Japanese offensive. After leaving Corregidor, MacArthur and his family traveled by boat 560 miles to the Philippine island of Mindanao, braving mines, rough seas, and the Japanese Navy. At the end of the hair-raising 35-hour journey, MacArthur told the boat commander, John D. Berkeley, You have taken me out of the jaws of death, and I will not forget it. On March 17th, the general and his family boarded a B-17 flying fortress for northern Australia. He then took another aircraft and a long train ride down to Melbourne. During this journey, he was informed that there were far fewer Allied troops in Australia than he had hoped. Relief for his forces trapped in the Philippines would not be forthcoming. Deeply disappointed, he issued a statement to the press in which he promised his men... And the people of the Philippines, I shall return. This promise would become his mantra during the next two and a half years, and he would often repeat it in public appearances. MacArthur was put in command of Allied forces in the South Pacific. His first duty was to conduct the defense of Australia. Meanwhile, in the Philippines, Bataan fell in April. 70,000 American and Filipino soldiers were captured and they were forced to undertake a death march in which at least 7,000 men perished. Then in May, Corregidor surrendered and another 15,000 Americans and Filipinos were captured. The Philippines were lost and the U.S. Joint Chief of Staffs had no immediate plans for their liberation. After the U.S. victory at the uh, Battle of Midway in June of 1942, most allied resources in the Pacific went to the U.S. Admiral Chester Nimitz, who was commander of the Pacific Fleet. Undaunted, MacArthur launched a major offensive in New Guinea, winning a string of victories with his limited forces. By September 1944, he was poised to launch an invasion on the Philippines, but the needed supplies were with Nimitz's Pacific fleet. After a period of indecision about whether to invade the Philippines or Formosa, the Joint Chief of Staffs put their support behind MacArthur's plan, which logistically could be carried out sooner than the invasion of Formosa. On October twentieth, 1944, a few hours after his troops landed, MacArthur waded ashore onto the Philippine island of Leyte. That day, he made a radio broadcast in which he declared... To the Philippine people, I have returned. In January of 1945, his forces invaded the main Philippine island of Luzon. In February, Japanese forces in Bataan were cut off and Corregidor was captured. Manila, the Philippine capital, fell in March and in June, MacArthur announced his offensive operations on Luzon to be at an end. Although scattered Japanese resistance continued to the end of the war, in August, only one-third of the men MacArthur left behind were alive to see his return. I am a little late, he said, but I finally came. Jesus left on a long journey. He returned to the Father, but he has promised us that he will return. It's been a long time since he left. But he has told us why he has not returned. He has not returned because he hopes that more will be saved. But mark his word, he will return. And when he returns, he will summon each and every one of us into his presence. And he will ask us, What have you done with what I have entrusted to you? It is the job of this church, it is the job of every church, it is the job of every Christian to make sure that when Jesus returns, all of us are called into His presence and we all hear these words. Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful in a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Come and share in your Master's happiness. What a great day that will be. You know, our trials on earth will be over. We will be spending eternity with the Master. And things will be very good. I want and I pray that we are all there together. If you're not a Christian this morning and you'd like to become one, we want to give you that opportunity. Dini's going to be over here at the door and the prayer room will be open. If there's things that you need to pray about, feel free to come forward and Dini will find someone to pray with you. Would you bow and pray with me? Father God, we are so thankful for what you have done to us, for us. You have blessed us in so many, many ways and you have entrusted us with a great deal. Father, your success on earth here depends on how faithful we are. So Father, I pray for our strength. I pray for our desire to do what You have left us to do. Lord, thank You for all that You do. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.